You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode two. Introduction, March 1972. The transsexual story began probably in antiquity. Anecdotal records of transvestites or cross-dressers, such as the Chevalier Dion de Beaumont, the French diplomat, who lived for 83 years and for 34 of these as a woman, serve as an indicator of the high social regard 18th century nobility had for the transsexual. The female counterpart is best exemplified by Mary Walker, who, during the Civil War, became the first American woman to be commissioned as an army surgeon. Mary Walker dressed in men's clothing. We do not know whether the French Chevalier or the American surgeon would have undergone sex conversion surgery if facilities were available to them. The first sex change operation reported in medical literature was by F. Abraham in 1931, The first sex reassignment under medical and surgical supervision was the Danish artist Erner Wegener, who became Lily Elbum. The confusion in sexual identification and gender role disorientation is a relatively new psychiatric frontier. The term transsexualism was first used by D. Caldwell in 1949 as psychopathia transsexualis. H. Benjamin described several cases of transsexualism in a talk in 1963, and the word transsexual became part of our modern vocabulary. Various attempts to define properly this syndrome have been made. A good working definition that is currently acceptable is that of J. Money, who writes, Transsexualism is a disturbance of gender identity in which the person manifests with constant and persistent conviction the desire to live as a member of the opposite sex and progressively takes to live in the opposite sex role full-time, end quote. There are, in my opinion, over 100,000 transsexuals in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Probably more than 3,000 of these have undergone some form of sex reassignment surgery. These figures poignantly point out the scope of the transsexual story. Dr. Leo Woolman, MD, Fellow of the Royal Society of Health. The most difficult task in writing this book is getting the right perspective on myself. It is only human to color facts with imagination and dreams. I am interested not in the way I have imagined the world, but in the way medical science and the world have recreated me from male to female. By no means has my life been a series of tragedies. I've really never taken anyone very seriously, least of all myself. My life has been a combination of laughter, fear, and sadness. I want not only to record occurrences, but to leave for posterity the ideas that life, because of my unique situation, has forced me to accept. The pages of this book are a storehouse of memories gathered along the path of life. I personally have quietly accepted the penalties imposed upon one who fails to follow the conventions and mores of the masses. 
I have changed the names of people who appear here, particularly those of my aged parents, to preserve their privacy from the prying eyes of the curious. I have written this book with deep emotional feeling, honesty, and love. Chapter 1. It was 12.30 a.m., June 12, 1962. Toronto was stifling, as was all of the Lower Lakes region, from oppressive heat and soaring humidity. Any therapeutic effects a light breeze was trying to dispense went completely unheeded by me as I sweated, tossed, turned, squirmed, and sweated some more. I stared at the bedroom ceiling with a vain expectancy. Unbeknown to me, farther up the same street at number 134, my friend Rosemary slept fitfully. Her slumbers were punctuated by spasmodic exhalations and sighs. Even more unbeknown, several miles away on Highway 401, Toronto's main east-west artery, a small blue European car, its only occupant, a lone male, sped toward downtown and tragedy. In the city, the 90-degree temperature had been alleviated by a short, sharp thunder shower around midnight. This had merely produced a film of moisture on the roads that made driving exacting and hazardous. The skies had cleared after the storm, but little had been done to curb the oppressive humidity that hung like a pall over the night air. In utter desperation, I picked up the phone and dialed Rosemary's number. She answered right after the first ring. "'Are you awake, Rosemary?' I queried. "'Can anyone sleep on a night like this?' came her reply. "'Let's go for a drive, just to cool off. "'It'll only take me two minutes to get dressed. "'Just throw on a coat. No one'll see us. "'I'll be at your place within five minutes. See you.' My voice trailed off. I got up from the bed where I'd been lying in a bath of perspiration." went to the wash basin to slosh my face and neck with cool water, pulled on a pair of slacks, struggled into a blouse, slipped my feet into thongs, grabbed my handbag, and headed for the door. I went down the narrow stairs from the apartment to the main hallway. As I opened the front door, a blast of humid, sultry air assailed me. My car was parked on the street directly in front of the house, although Rosemary lived only six houses away. I was forced to take a three-minute drive around the block, because it was a one-way street. I headed in a northerly direction. The time was a quarter to one. I tooted the horn outside Rosemary's house and waited two minutes for her to appear. Come on and jump in, Rosemary. It's stifling in this car. I've opened all the windows and it should cool off when we start driving. I was at the wheel, Rosemary beside me. She leaned back against the seat and closed her eyes. As we drove along, neither of us spoke. Occasionally, Rosemary would open her eyes long enough to exchange a tight-lipped smile with me. This spoke a million words of our deep-rooted friendship. I turned up the volume of the car radio, which was tuned to my favorite station, CFRB. I checked my watch from the greenish light of the dashboard. It was 1 a.m. I drove on to Highway 401, past apartment buildings, beyond which we glimpsed the lights of Toronto. Glancing into my rearview mirror... I spotted headlights from a blue car about a mile behind us. It seemed to be the only other vehicle going in our direction. As he approached, the driver slowed the car down to our speed. It moved along gradually in front of us, almost blocking our way. Because neither Rosemary nor I were seeking male companionship, I decided to pass him. For a moment, the road ahead was completely clear. Then the driver of the blue car accelerated. In doing so, he sideswiped us. My actions were pure reflex. The steering wheel went completely out of control. The wheels started to spin. The car ricocheted madly from side to side. Rosemary gasped, screamed, pressed her palms against the dashboard. She leaned frantically across the front seat and grabbed the steering wheel. Her slight build was no match for the Plymouth. 
We lurched off the road. Brakes squealed. The car continued its onward rush to destruction. The impact of our car against the guardrail was deafening and shattering. The doors flew open. An instant after hitting the guardrail, the car veered over onto its side. Seconds later, it careened down the embankment. I woke from an oblivion and dimly realized I was lying on a damp, grassy slope. My head was throbbing and I trembled violently all over. There was still that all-pervading heat and sweat oozed from every pore. Trying to stand up, I was aware that my entire body ached. I must be badly bruised. Are you all right? A brief pause. Then the same voice again. Can you walk, miss? His shadowy figure came into view. For a moment, I didn't say anything. I just stared at him, mesmerized. I tried to get to my feet, but my legs had turned to rubber. Jim, I later learned his name, was on his way home from his gas station. The tall, handsome Nova Scotian, who owned his own garage, had left work less than 20 minutes before. Yes, I'm okay. Where's Rosemary? Oh, where is she? I sobbed. Almost two minutes had gone by. My question was answered by her agonized moans and groans. Diana, Diana. Her voice was so faint, it barely reached me. I gestured toward her. Please help her. Please, please, I begged. He left me and rushed to Rosemary's side. She lay above me on the slope in a pool of blood. I tried to call out to her. No words would come to me. I tried again. The same. I stumbled after Jim till I too reached her. Her beautiful face was streaked with blood, one side of it red and swollen. Her coat was nowhere in sight. Her semi-nude body lay bleeding, battered, and bruised. Jim bent over to see if she was still breathing. She was, but each breath was a faint, shallow gasp. We've got to get her to the hospital right now, he said over his shoulder. He gently cradled Rosemary in his arms and carried her up the steep embankment toward his parked car. I followed. It was a tremendous effort. I stumbled and fell several times before reaching the top. Above us on the road, as far as I was able to see, other vehicles were stopping. The southbound lane was halted. My world was peering faces, slippery grass, jabbering, blabbering voices, blinding headlights, smells of acrid burning rubber. I slipped again. My horizon was tar as I staggered to the road. I must follow. Gasping for breath, we reached the road. Jim was in a state of exhaustion from carrying the dead weight of an unconscious girl. His feet desperately sought a foothold on the wet, slippery grass. A tow truck, its amber lights blinking, was already on the scene. As I looked down the embankment, I saw its driver surveying the wreckage of what once had been my car. One of the onlookers had opened the back door of Jim's car. Jim placed Rosemary gently on the rear seat. I stumbled to the front door, but didn't have the strength to open it. Jim opened the door for me. Slamming it shut, he rushed around to the front of the car and into the driver's seat. Jim did not wait for the police to arrive. His mind was set on getting Rosemary to the nearest hospital. He revved the engine of the car before we rushed into the night. We passed under a railroad bridge and began a sweeping turn. Jim took this at top speed in his anxiety to reach the hospital. Rosemary fell off the back seat with a resounding thud. She muttered incoherently. I leaned over the front seat to try and raise her up. Leave her, Jim cautioned. We're nearly there. That's the hospital to our left. Obeying, I watched as the welcoming lights of the hospital came nearer and nearer. He rounded a final curve and followed a sign ominously reading emergency. As his car pulled to a screeching halt, two aides hurried out. They covered Rosemary's nudity with a blue hospital blanket, and the heftier of the two lifted her onto a stretcher. 
Jim was distraught as he walked beside her. I managed to get into the hospital assisted by him. Curious eyes of other patients followed our progress. As Rosemary disappeared behind swinging doors, a nurse came up to me and asked if I felt well enough to answer some questions. I nodded. Despite this, she motioned towards a stretcher and made me lay down on it. She took the usual details from me. My name, age, address, and place of business. While she questioned me, I could hear repeated over the hospital intercom, Dr. Brown to emergency, please. Dr. Brown to emergency. My response to this summons was a flood of uncontrollable tears bordering on hysteria. Where's Rosemary? Where is she? Please, nurse, where is she? My question was answered by the nurse handing me a glass of water and a pill, which I downed grudgingly. I felt a needle in my arm. There were 15 years difference between Rosemary and me. I was in my 20s, Rosemary in her late 30s. I sometimes felt the gap was greater than it really was. Rosemary was becoming conscious of her age. But in reality, age was not the gap. There was another one, much wider, or so it seemed. While washing her face yesterday morning, she had seen two faint wrinkles that were deepening. They were more ingrained than when she checked them just a week before. Her 40th birthday was drawing nearer. She needn't have worried. Her small bone, delicately shaped frame, set off by a head of pitch black hair, was admired by boys and men many years her junior. Her Dresden blue eyes sparkled, and her full breasts set off every garment she wore. Rosemary's marriage to Hal had in most ways terminated. Physically, they were separated. Rosemary lived in Toronto. Hal, with his mistress, lived in Burbank, California. All that Rosemary seemed to think about nowadays was getting her Canadian citizenship, but day by day she seemed no closer to obtaining it. Rosemary, who was born in Southern Ireland, needed it so she could live in the United States and somehow break up the relationship between Hal and the other woman. I couldn't understand her reasoning. Not only did she have no guarantee once her citizenship papers were through that he would come back to her, but after months and months of waiting, there was still no sign of it being granted. Until recently, she'd been content to work as a cocktail waitress at a downtown nightclub getting her sexual satisfaction from the all-too-numerous lonely men looking for an attractive woman to satiate their temporary sexual appetites. Despite this, she hoped vaguely that her marriage, including the sexual incompatibilities, might be rekindled. I felt she was deluding herself. The sedative, whatever it contained, carried me into oblivion. As I lay on the stretcher in the hallway, all the terrors and anxieties of the accident dissolved into nothingness. But the nothingness was punctuated by an awakening, an awakening that found Jim standing by my side. Where's Rosemary? I mumbled as the terrorizing memories of that awesome accident came coursing back to my semi-conscious mind. From where I lay, I could see a nurse sitting at her station under a lamp about 20 feet away. Her impeccable white uniform gleamed. With help, I managed to get off the stretcher and woozily walk over to the nurse. She looked at me and perceptibly hesitated. Diana, I need some information from you. Do you think you're well enough to talk to me? She asked in a quiet, level voice. Sit down, she said, pointing to a nearby chair. My heart began to beat faster. What is the girl's name? Rosemary Sheehan, I replied. Oh, why all these superfluous questions, I thought irritably. That's an Irish name, isn't it? What the hell does it matter what it is at a time like this? Where does she live? 134 Madison Avenue, I sulkily replied. At last, after more questions and more banalities, she finally seized this pointless interrogation. Pent-up words burst uncontrollably from my lips. May I see Rosemary, please? The nurse's voice was low. Yes, you can see her, but only for a moment. 
She motioned me to follow her. A hallway was immediately ahead. The nurse went into a small antiseptic room, and I was silent as I followed her. Rosemary was laying inside a plastic oxygen tent. The only sounds were the cylinders hissing and the subdued voices of two white-coated doctors. The nurse unzipped the front of the tent. Rosemary mumbled. She moaned. She tried to say something, but all I could understand was, Diana, Diana. She tried desperately to speak again, but her eyes slowly began to close. A complexion of death haunted her beautiful face. I leaned over her. I desperately wanted to touch her, but I felt helpless. The nurse tugged at my arm, and then she said, Diana, you've got to leave now. She must sleep. She led me from the room. We retraced our steps to the nursing station, where I sat down in the same chair as before. A moment later, the nurse was called away by a young intern. This was my chance. I had to leave, but only I knew why. I was guarding a secret within my very being. I just couldn't stay in the hospital. Please take me out of here, I said to Jim. I knew I couldn't stay in these surroundings for one more second. He agreed. All right, I'll take you home. He took me by the arm and we hastened down a long corridor, down a flight of steps, out to the parking lot. We headed swiftly for his car. I thought we had left unobserved, but I was wrong. Miss, miss, an intern yelled from the steps. Come back. He ran toward the car, shouting as we ran. You can't leave the hospital. You have to be examined. You haven't been discharged. His pleas were to no avail. Let's go. I want to get out of here. I must. I must. I was almost screaming. As the car gathered speed and left the hospital parking lot, Jim smiled and turning to me said, I could use a cup of coffee. How about you? Somehow, despite all the preceding panic, he had managed to retain an air of serenity that was unnerving. Yes, I sure could. Do you have a cigarette? He offered me a half-empty pack of Benson and Hedges, which ironically happened to be my favorite brand, pressed the lighter into the dashboard, and waited for it to spring free. When it was heated, he leaned across and lit my cigarette as he clasped my trembling hands. As he drove slowly along toward a restaurant, I relived the past hour. How serious were Rosemary's injuries? Would she recover? I tried to blank her out of my thoughts completely, but Rosemary and my involvement in the accident constantly haunted me, yet I was powerless to do anything about it. There should be a coffee shop open a few blocks further along, Jim said. We drove about half a mile, and we saw a garish neon sign proclaiming open 24 hours. He parked the car outside the entrance, pulled on the emergency brake, but left the engine running. He got out of the car, shut the door, then sticking his head through the open window, inquired, How do you want yours, regular or black? As soon as he disappeared into the dingy restaurant, I rested my head on the padded dashboard, and hysterically burst into uncontrollable tears. A few minutes later, he returned carrying two paper cups of coffee. Upon seeing me, he set them down on the sidewalk beside the car. He quietly opened the car door and gently sat down beside me, putting his arm around my shoulder in an effort to calm me. Do you think maybe I should drive you back to the hospital? You're in no state to go home like this. You need medical help. Please let me take you to the doctor. Not yielding to his urgings, I said no, Take me home. I want to sleep in my own bed. I sobbed violently, but I looked directly into his eyes. His earlier mood of optimism was turning to one of skepticism. He was faced then with the alternatives of either driving me back to the hospital or home. He chose the latter. All right, if you insist, where do you live? 125 Madison Avenue. I gulped between sobs. The homeward journey was a blur of car lights glimpsed between body-shaking sobs 
hysterical inhalations, added to all this, the unbearable heat. The next thing I remember was being helped out of the car. Jim was almost carrying me, at least bearing all of my weight. We walked toward the welcoming, gaily painted front door. My landlady, Marge, a jolly French-Canadian in her late thirties, cautiously opened the door, slightly in response to our persistent knocks. I could see the look of relief on her face as she realized it was me. She clasped me in her arms. Oh, Diana, I'm so glad you're okay. When you called from the hospital, I was so worried. I sent Al over to bring you home. He's over there now, I guess, but I'm sure they'll tell him you've left. I shook my head doubtfully, though not entirely dismissing the idea. It was only then that I remembered I'd managed to call her from a corridor payphone at the hospital. I hardly think so, I mused, but left my thoughts unsaid. There were no formal farewells or even thanks to Jim. Marge waved a faint goodbye, and with a quick so long, he left. I walked across the hallway to the foot of the staircase, grasped the railing, and literally dragged myself up the stairs to my rooms. I flung myself across my bed, fully clothed, buried my head in the pillows, and cried myself into a tortured sleep. I awoke to the insistent jangle of the telephone. For a moment I ignored it, hoping it would stop ringing, but I reached across the bed for the receiver. Hello? I drawled, half-dazed with fatigue. Is this Miss Smith? A crisp, business-like voice asked. Miss Diana Smith? Yes. Who is this? I queried, ignoring my tiredness. I'm from the hospital. I'm sorry to have to tell you. Your friend Rosemary passed away an hour ago. I'm very sorry, Miss Smith. We did everything we could to save her. Now, if you could possibly give us some more details about... I dropped the phone to the floor, leaving the receiver dangling from its cord. The silence seemed endless. From afar, I could hear a faint voice calling, Diana, Diana. Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold I Am a Woman, a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed by Faye Flatt of Fort Francis Little Theatre and recorded and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive.